Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is David Bose. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I'm glad to see all of you here. Um, we're having a discussion of conservatism today with a couple of speakers who approach conservatism from unusual perspectives. Bill Kaufman has described his own politics as a blend of Catholic worker, old right libertarian, Yorker, transcendentalist, and delirious localist. And Michael Tomaski has made the long march from West Virginia to a succession of elite left liberal journals of opinion. <laughs> Still, when official conservatives are reported to have risen to their feet as one to chant four more years at a president who had just given them eight years of unprecedented federal spending, trillion-dollar expansions of entitlements, nationalization of education, an imperial presidency, and a failing war in a far-off land, it may take outsiders to recall what conservatism was and perhaps could be. Bill Kaufman is the author of six books, most recently Look Homeward America, which was named one of the best books of 2006 by the American Library Association, and America First. He worked for Senator Pat Moynihan when he was a young man in Washington. I accused him of having worked for the Heritage Foundation, and he assures me that he never, ever would have done that. The reason for my confusion is that his first book was a novel about a young man from western New York who came to Washington and worked for an intellectual senator with a drinking problem and a think tank that might have been interpreted, if you were in a bad mood, uh, to be the Heritage Foundation. But he assures me that that was drawn on other people's experiences. Um, he did, uh, at various points, also serve as an editor of Reason and of the magazine of the American Enterprise Institute. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the American Conservative, and many other publications. A lot of people in Washington recommend lifestyle choices to all of us. Some of them want those lifestyle choices to be enforced. Um, there is the prominent politician who demands that we all reduce our carbon footprint and himself lives in a house that has a larger carbon footprint than the entire town that Bill Kaufman now lives in. There are also plenty of Washington politicians on the other side of the aisle who recommend traditional values to Americans that they themselves are not always observed to follow. Um, but Bill Kaufman writes about how people ought to love the place they live and ought to live in small towns and different regions and not think that the bright lights in the big city are where everyone ought to be. And in fact, he left Washington and moved back to upstate New York where he had grown up and where he continues to live. Um, I will invite Bill up in a moment to talk about his new book, Ain't My America, The Long Noble History of Anti-War Conservatism and Middle American Anti-Imperialism. Um, I've read this, uh, much of it, and I can tell you it really is a good read. Um, and after that, we will have a comment from Michael Tomaski, who is the editor of Garden America, uh, Guardian America, <laughs> the... <laughs> <laughs> Though I'm sure he would be good at the other coming from West Virginia. <laughs> Guardian America is the American online version of the uh, famous Guardian of London. Um, he was previously a columnist at the Village Voice and then at New York. He later became executive editor of the American Prospect. And his work has appeared virtually everywhere, the New York Times, the New York Times Book Review, the Washington Post, Harper's The Nation, the New York Review of Books, George and GQ. Um, and he's the author of two books. One is Left for Dead, The Life, Death, and Possible Resurrection of Progressive Politics in America. And also he's the author of Hillary's Turn Inside Her Improbable Victorious Senate Campaign. And I can see that there might be a sequel to that. Um, I Saint promise Proposal you not. probably works with a few adjectives <laughs> changed. At this point, please let me welcome up to our podium Bill Kaufman. Long time no see. Uh, thanks to David Bose for the invitation and uh, for, I am told, uh, providing uh, for the reception afterward that nectar of the gods known as New York State wine. Uh, and thanks to Kelly Lignos of Holt Metropolitan for getting me here. Last time I was in the Cato Institute, it was over on Capitol Hill, just a Molotov cocktail's throw from the House office buildings. <laughs> 
I recall in the spring of 1987, the night before my soon long-to-be-suffering wife and I eloped, uh, we attended what must have been Cato's 10th anniversary dinner. We were seated next to the great libertarian polemicist Roy Childs. Roy excused himself to go to the bathroom, and then Lucine, my wife, stole his dessert. I don't know how many of you remember Roy, a man of prodigious appetites. That act of thievery put me on notice that I was marrying a very gutsy woman. I have long been moved by a remark, an injunction really, by the great left-wing Iowa patriot and historian William Appleman Williams, who so valiantly rehabilitated those two defenderless conservative presidents, John Quincy Adams and Herbert Hoover. So let us think about the people who lost, said Williams. We have an unfortunate tendency to wipe the people who lost out of our histories, to flush them down the memory hole, or if they refuse to disappear, to go back and paint snidely whiplash mustaches on their luckless countenances. And so we are left with a triumphalist version of history in which everything always turns out for the best, and there are no other conceivable courses down which the stream of American history might have run. It had to be this way. My new book, in its uh, I'll get to the point eventually style, is a sympathetic account of anti-expansionists and non-leftist critics of war throughout American history. Finally, Grover Cleveland gets his due Mm -hmm. for doing his girthful best to keep his countrymen from straying down the primrose if bomb-strewn lane of imperialism. Grover Cleveland, just another fat buffalo drunk sitting on a bar stool cursing the bills? I don't think so. (laughs) I sing not only underrated statesmen, but also forgotten cranks and holy fools, because I'm afraid that both old-fashioned American individualism and the cooperative communal spirit are fraying badly. I didn't think I'd ever see an America in which surveillance cameras are posted on city streets and 90-year-old ladies are frisked before boarding an airplane, not to mention gray-haired men having to show a government ID card just to buy a six-pack. What would Patrick Henry say? Give me liberty or give me the HBO cable package. Well, I miss America. Bill Clinton once lamented that, quote, It's hard when you're not threatened by a foreign enemy to whip people up to a fever pitch of common, intense, sustained, disciplined endeavor, end quote. Well, George W. Bush sure learned that lesson. But is this really a legitimate function of the U.S. government? Sustained, disciplined endeavor driven by a populace at fever pitch and organized by the central state is fascistic. It ill befits the country of Ken Kesey and Bob Dylan and Johnny Appleseed. It ain't my America. Hey, there's a title. Atticus. I'd be like shooting a mockingbird. Back in 1948, as the long, dark night of the Cold War was descending, a young Taft Republican named Jack Kerouac wrote, The war scare, I think, is just for the sake of squeeze-playing Congress and devoting universal military training in the Marshall Plan. It's a dirty administration with dirty tricks, creating emergencies for its own political ends and all tied up with the brass. I think we should arm and just dare anybody to attack, but I don't think we should be the aggressors. That wouldn't pan out. Jack hit the road. Truman got his Marshall Plan and a draft, but not UMT. And 60 years on, we're seeing how well being the aggressors is panning out. This isn't Jack's America either. How feeble the voices of dissent sound today. Edgar Lee Masters the Spoon River Anthology poet of Southern Illinois and a great states' rights Democrat, recalled of the Spanish-American War, there was great opposition to the war over the country, but at that time an American was permitted to speak out against a war if he chose to do so. Masters had lived through the frenzied persecution of anti-war dissidents under the liberal Democrat Hurt Woodrow Wilson, beside whom George W. Bush looks like Nat Hentoff. <laughs> Masters had little patience with gilded platitudes about wars for human rights and the perfection of the species. He knew that war meant death and taxes, those proverbial inevitabilities, 
that become shining virtues in the fog of martial propaganda. Masters would be appalled by the contraction of the range of permissible political opinion in this country. Why should the limits to political discourse be demarcated by Arthur Schlesinger's ghost and Bill Bennett's ghost writer? What an impoverished and specious political culture it is that bars the anti-federalist, loco-foco, populist, old-right, voluntaristic, new-left traditions of American descent. These are the streams in which I swim, not the mainstreams, to be sure, but little creeks that have just as valid a claim to the land. In the meandering course of this book, better a dozen digressions in one point, I happily take in other strays, too, and look out other vistas. The world is far too lovely a place to walk through it along a party line. No ideas but in things, said William Carlos Williams, the New Jersey poet patriot. Well, I say no ideas but in people. So this book is in part a series of profiles of figures who are not so much representative as extraordinary. Black Jack Randolph, the brilliant and eccentric Virginia Tertium Quid, who once proposed Greek love to old hickory, Andrew Jackson. I'm betting that one went unconsummated. I write about Thomas Corwin, the Ohio Whig who delivered perhaps the most fiery anti-war speech in congressional history, when on February 11, 1847, he told the hushed Senate, if I were a Mexican, I would tell you, have you not room in your own country to bury your dead men? If you come into mine, we will greet you with bloody hands and welcome you to hospitable graves. Talk about not supporting the troops. <clears throat> Yet Senator Corwin was dispatched not to Coventry, not to Siberia, not to Elba, but to the cabinet of Millard Fillmore, the peace president. Queen Victoria once said that Fillmore was the most handsome man she'd ever met, and yet he was par for the upstate New York course. No snickers, please. <laughs> I write also of the virtuous uh, Moorfield story, Boston Brahmin and president of both the NAACP and the Anti-Imperialist League, and of Claude Kitchen, the Democratic majority leader from North Carolina who took on Woodrow Wilson over U.S. entry into the First World War. It takes neither moral nor physical courage to declare a war for others to fight, said Kitchen, anticipating by 90 years the incredible lightness of fleeing by Dick Cheney. The Republican Party has been home to several of the noble souls I write of. Justin Morrill, George Frisbee Hoare, Robert A. Taft, men who at least on occasion stood for peace, for staying out of foreign quarrels, for permitting the natives of distant islands to follow their own lights rather than submitting to the ministrations of the great white father in Washington. Alas, locating the anti-war wing of today's Republican Party is like looking for the Juice Newton wing in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I thought that was funny. <laughs> Jesus, laugh. I laughed. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yes, there was the astonishing and heartening fundraising and consciousness-raising success of the admirable and estimable Ron Paul, but the party's standard-bearer, John McCain, is a classic military brat, a med school-quality specimen racked and riven with the pathologies peculiar to his lifelong milieu. A man without a home, whose loyalty is not to any specific place or neighborhood or even region, but rather to the institution of the military and to the American empire it serves. He's a man so rootless he makes Hillary Clinton look like William Faulkner. Like Hillary Clinton, he lacks even the most exiguous tie to the state he represents in the Senate. Barry Goldwater was from Arizona. John McCain is a man from nowhere. And men from nowhere are dangerous. The trait associated most often with hypermobility is an, in, is an inability to form attachments. No wonder McCain wants to leave American soldiers in Iraq for 100 years. One place is pretty much the same as the next to him. All he's ever doing is just passing through. As Phil Oakes sang, I would be in exile now, but everywhere is the same. McCain, the militarist to whom moderates flock, also illustrates the utter uselessness of our political taxonomy. The old labels, the old categories, 
the old cattle pens and ideological prison cells, they don't mean anything anymore. They haven't for years. Liberal, conservative, left, right, these may as well be Esperanto words. You have a compassionate conservative administration that promised a humble foreign policy that is spending trillions of dollars sending young Americans, many of them young husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, wrenched from their families to the other side of the world to occupy a country that has never attacked us or even threatened to do so. How is this conservative? What do you call those of us who want to save those trillions of dollars of taxpayers' money and reunite those husbands and wives and children in their own hearths and homes? Cringing appeasers of Islamofascism or patriots. War. What is it good for? But also, the prosthetic limb industry, the moving van industry, funeral parlors located near military bases. It is also in the Randolph-Bourne aphorism that I'm sure has been repeated many times in this Hayek Hall, the health of the state. It is the essence and engine of big government. It shreds liberties. It expends astronomical sums. It feeds young men and now young women into the charnel house. In the book, I discuss the ways in which the U.S. military is the enemy of the American family. If the family values right had a shred of integrity, it would at least acknowledge a certain tension between militarism and domestic tranquility. But they're all bought and paid for by the same foundations, and they don't want to endanger their grants. Eternal discretion, as Gore Vidal says, is the price of admission to American political discussion. War and a militarized state efface and pervert everything that traditionalist conservatives profess. War forcibly uproots people. It alters courtship patterns. It spreads venereal disease, if not democracy. It separates husbands and wives and parents from children. It always leads to a spike in the divorce rate among service personnel. Because while absence may make the heart grow fonder, love's truest expression is fixity. And war consigns the offspring of soldiers to government daycare. In fact, such daycare was the spawn of war, born as the Lanham Act of 1940, which subsidized over 3,000 daycare centers to incarcerate Rosie the Riveter's neglected kids. Today, Hillary Clinton, the militaristic school marm, who was once a bugbear to the right until she bared her fangs and rattled her saber against Iran, Hillary exalts the U.S. Army for its model child care system. The Army is now the single biggest daycare provider in the land of the semi-free. Over 200,000 American tykes are being raised in military daycare centers, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And what the Pentagon, with its usual tone deafness to Orwellian rings, calls the total Army family. This is another legacy of George W. Bush. He is, by policy, the most anti-family president in American history. The love affair between family values advocates and the Pentagon has been a disastrous shack-up. No agency of the federal government has done as much to subvert the traditional American family as has the Department of Defense. For sheer obscenity, it's hard to beat separating mothers from children than sending those mothers across the world to assist in the taking of life. The religious right is too often a meaningless term of opprobrium that irreligious people slap on anyone who goes to church. But the forfeiture of principle by the religious right over these last five years is galling. The New Testament is to them as the U.S. Constitution is to a Bush attorney general. As for the Old Testament, I always thought that thou shalt not kill meant us too. As we watch this latest diaspora of American youth, as young husbands and wives cheerfully leave spouses and children and extended families to serve the empire, we should remind them that the only foreign policy compatible with healthy family life is one of peace and non-intervention. I wrote this book in sadness, anger, and love. Sadness over what is happening to my country. Anger at the chicken hawks who have hijacked American foreign policy. And as with all my writings, love for my own place, the little postage stamp of ground on which I and my neighbors and family live, a piece of the world which means nothing to the empire, but means everything to me. You can't have a healthy home and the empire. They can't coexist. 
You can't care about Baghdad and your own backyard. And this isn't some pee into obscurantism. Or as the host of a national radio program once said to me, you're against penicillin and the space program. Well, one out of two ain't bad. (laughs) A crusader state is not an engine of arts and culture. Parenthetically, the most fecund eras in American literature, the 1850s and the 1920s, were decades of fairly weak and indifferent national governments and below-average presidents, presidential grades being calculated perversely on the widely accepted Schlesinger scale by the number of people who died, uh, in which greatness is determined by the number of people who died of state violence under their reigns. All George W. Bush needs to do is nuke Iran and it'll zoom up to the realm of near greats with the diarrhea-ridden expansionist James K. Polk and Nagasaki Harry Truman. I write a bit in this book about the Spanish-American War as a turning point in our history. Hey, nothing sells books quite like the Spanish-American War. (laughs) In its aftermath, William Vaughn Moody, one of the finest American poets of the early 20th century, published a series of anguished pleas to his countrymen, begging them not to dishonor the noble ideals of the American founding by seizing the Philippines and subjugating when not slaughtering its population. Moody was no political hack. He was an Indiana boy, a poet and dramatist, who said he wanted to give the world not a syllogism, but a song. To his biographer's dismay, he upheld, quote, the old conservative positions of laissez-faire government and non-intervention, end quote. So he was grieved that the government of his beloved country was going in for cheapjack imperialism. I want to read you the last two stanzas of Moody's On a Soldier Fallen in the Philippines in which he urges his countrymen never to let the deceased know of the rotten cause for which he has given his life. It retains relevance in this support our troops age, especially for those of us with friends or family members in uniform today on the other side of the world. Toll, let the great bells toll, till the clashing air is dim. Did we wrong this parted soul? We will make it up to him. Toll, let him never guess what work we sent him to, Laurel, Laurel, yes, he did what we bade him do. Praise and never a whispered hint, but the fight he fought was good. Never a word that the blood on his sword was his country's own heart's blood. A flag for the soldier's beer, who dies that his land may live. O banners, banners here, that he doubt not nor misgive. That he heed not from the tomb the evil days draw near. When the nation, robed in gloom with its faithless past, shall strive. Let him never dream that his bullet's scream went wide of its island mark, home to the heart of his darling land where she stumbled and sinned in the dark. A hundred plus years on and we're still stumbling. We're still stinning. It grows ever darker and dark, too dark to see. But there are shafts of light. The Hoosier Moody despaired when in 1904 Teddy Roosevelt whom the novelist Henry Blake Fuller, another conservative anti-imperialist Midwesterner called the Megaphone of Mars, defeated the phlegmatic Wall Street Democrat Alton B. Parker. The vision in the light of which our country was created and has grown great will soon fade, mourned Moody, and one more world dream will have been found impossible to live out. Our different destiny may be greater, but the America that we have known and passionately believed in will be no more. It's striking how often American patriots have rung the death knell for the republic. New England Federalists did it when Jefferson bought Louisiana. Jack Radnolf did it when Jemmy Madison launched the War of 1812. And critics of these first two of our perhaps never-ending Middle East wars have done the same. At what point did we pass from republic to empire? 1900, 1948. Luther Martin, the Maryland anti-federalist whose biography I have written... It'll be out in late 08, and I expect when this baby's published, the state is just going to throw in its cards and say, we give. (laughs) Uncle. (laughs) Or dissolving. Anyway, Martin would tell you the game was up when the counter-revolutionaries of 1787 overthrew the gentle Articles of Confederation and fastened the chains of the Constitution upon the 13 states. All of which is to say that wise men and dolorous patriots have espied the Republic's eclipse since its birth. This book, and I suppose most of my work, if that's not too grand a word to apply to fugitive scribblings and spitting into the hurricane, 
is an attempt to sketch an alternative little America, the nation, the nations we might have had, a smaller, homelier, peaceful country, which I see still in bits and pieces in my own life, in volunteer fire departments, minor league baseball, country churches, little historical societies, and which exists in cities too, and in the writings and examples of Jane Jacobs, Dorothy Day, Wendell Berry. There are two Americas, the televised America known and hated by the world and the rest of us. The former is a factitious creation whose strange gods include Katie Couric, Dick Cheney, accentless TV anchor people, terrorism experts, reruns of Friends in the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> it is real enough. Cross it and you'll learn more than you want to know about weapons of mass destruction. But it has no heart, no soul, no connection to the thousand and one little Americas that produced Mother Jones and Laura Ingalls Wilder and Scott Joplin and the mighty Casey who was struck out. I am of this other America, this unseen America, the America that plays the unheard music, to borrow a line from a keening Angelina, the America undreamt of by the foreigners who hate my country without knowing a single thing about it. This is not a soft focus beer or Ford truck commercial. You can learn about it by reading those wizened spinsters who, instead of whining about their osteoporosis, write and self-publish books on the histories of their little towns, of the farm wives and grain merchants and parsons and drunkards who made their places live. Senator Obama recently observed that those of us living in small towns in rural Americas are resentful losers who cling to God and guns. We don't start the wars. That's the job of the big city winners who don't need religion or guns. They have blackberries. But we and our children fight and die in them disproportionately. Death and taxes, those to our rulers, are the essence of patriotism. But there is a healthy and true kind of patriotism as well, and one that has inspired many of the best people in the anti-expansion and anti-war movements. It was described in G.K. Chesterton's wonderful novel, The Napoleon of Notting Hill, when he says of a character that, quote, he knew the supreme psychological fact about patriotism, the fact that the patriot never under any circumstances boasts of the largeness of his country, but always and of necessity boasts of the smallness of it. USA, USA, uh-uh. More like ever Batavia. Sweet home Alabama, straight out of Compton, 4th of July, Asbury Park. Now perhaps this speaks to the smallness of my imagination, the meagerness, the minginess of my spirit, what I can't comprehend, let alone love the world. I can only love or understand my little piece of it, the street where I live, the dirt under my feet. It is only from this kind of love that a cause, even one so noble as peace, achieves justness. Without land under us to steady us when we stood in Wendell Berry's phrase, a political movement is doomed to a formless rage that is as ugly in its own way as the Robert Strange McNamara Donald Rumsfeld cold calculus of death. Uprooted, I have been furious without a name, writes Berry. We should fear and despise the fury of the deracinated, the McCains, the Hillarys, the neocon publicists, people who have hatreds, but what do they love other than the wielding of power? It's not a hard and fast rule, but the launchers of American wars have tended to be displaced persons, men without homes, men who would never think to boast of the smallness of their country. Chesterton also said, I think the first thing that made me dislike imperialism was the statement that the sun never sets on the British Empire. What good is a country with no sunset? It's not only no good, it's a waking nightmare. Lincoln Calkard, two more pages, the main novelist, who was one of the many literary men and women who took their stand with the America First Committee in 1940, saw his country as losing itself as it took its place on the world stage. If America was everywhere, then it would be nowhere. To Calkard, home was Searsport, Maine, and his encomium upon it might stand as the creed of the whole little American tradition. It's not a bad place, much like many others, but the secret of our love for it lies in this. We know it intimately. This is the lesson I get from Thoreau. Love your own pond. All are beautiful. Be contented where you are. Content, a lost word in our America. This restless ambition, I cannot feel the truth of it. I cannot follow there. It ceases not to amaze me that those of us who oppose killing foreigners are thought pinched, parched, selfish, emotionally costive, isolationists. I mean, we're the ones who are operating out of love. 
out of attachments and affections. Besides, what's so terrifying about an America at peace? The little Americans, for instance, the anti-expansionists, are as much a presence in this book as are the anti-war patriots. Really now, isn't it about time we opened the Guam annexation, we reopened the Guam annexation question? Pastime. Jack Randolph, the Laird of Bazaar, asserted in 1822, no government extending from Atlantic to Pacific can be fit to govern me or those whom I represent. Randolph lost. My political heroes have a cumulative record resembling that of the Washington Senators or the Washington Nationals, worse even, the Washington Generals. Within four score years, the flag would fly over Hawaii of all places, despite the truly heroic efforts of that great Western New Yorker, Grover Cleveland, finest president since Martin Van Buren. You know, we'd have been in much better shape if there had been a constitutional requirement that the president must come from upstate New York. I know, I know, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, we all get a mulligan, don't we? Randolph raised a question that's with it still, even if no one bothers to... Uh, one more page, man, come on. Randolph raised a question that's with us still, even if no one ever bothers to answer it. Daniel Webster, Black Dan, a nationalist whom this localist admires very much, his warts become him, rephrased it in the 1840s when he said that, quote, there must be some limit to the extent of our territory if we are to make our institutions permanent. The government is very likely to be endangered by a further enlargement of its already vast territorial surface, end quote. How can so vast a land be governed by what is now, in effect, a unitary state based here? It can, I suppose, if we hew to small f federalism and let Utah be Utah and San Francisco be San Francisco, but try legalizing marijuana in California or banning abortion in Louisiana or refusing to allow the Minnesota National Guard to be sent abroad to do the empire's bidding, you'll see just how vital a forced federalism is in American political life today. 535 members of Congress, how many would permit California, Louisiana, and Minnesota to fashion their own laws in these matters? Five, if the Federalist solution is closed off, then perhaps we should look to secession, as my friends in the Second Vermont Republic are doing. Secession, ooh, call the thought police. But that is a topic for another day. In closing, I want to address the young people in the audience. That makes me feel so old. But, you know, long ago I was a 19-year-old intern in the House of Representatives listening to a summer's worth of platitudinous speeches. The best talk I heard was by Ralph Nader, bless his Norman Thomas heart. Anyway, if you want to partake of American politics, you're going to have to ask yourself what you want to be. A servitor of the empire? A lickspittle for power? A cog in an impersonal and soul-draining machine? Or will you stand on your own two feet in the glorious American tradition of Dorothy Day and Zora Neale Hurston and Wendell Berry and Henry Thoreau and Henry Mencken and Gene Debs and Gene McCarthy and Carl Hess and Robert Frost. Take the road less traveled. At least you won't run into Charlie Black. <clears throat> I suppose there's a sense in which my books are a kind of voice of the old America, the forgotten America, the untelevised America. We're behind 27 to 1 in the bottom of the eighth, but hey, you never know. <laughs> it ain't over till it's over. Besides, maybe it's a doubleheader. And I wouldn't switch teams if I could. After all, our side is homeschooling and homemade beer and sacrifice bunts and garage bands. Their side is bombs and tanks and television. How can we lose? To hell with the American empire. Long live the once and future American republic. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And now, please welcome Michael Tomaski. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. That was quite something. Wow. Because I'm following Comrade Kaufman, and I didn't, I had to, I felt that I should wait to hear what he said before I <clears throat> chose my remarks. So I haven't had a chance to write anything out. So. I'm going to have to try to be witty extemporaneously, which is a lot harder to do. Uh, I obviously failed there. Um, <clears throat> but, um, by the way, on the subject of John McCain, 
Uh, does everybody here know the story of his first uh, race for uh, the House of Representatives in Phoenix in 1982? Uh, because Bill's quite right that he was he was, he had uh, he had less connection, indeed far less connection to Phoenix and Arizona in 1982 than Hillary Clinton had to New York in 1999. Because at least she used to go to New York to raise money and campaign for Chuck Schumer. John McCain, as far as is known, had never set foot in Arizona until he met Cindy on a vacation. He was junketeering, actually, in Honolulu in 1979 and met Cindy there. Uh, <clears throat> he was separated from his first wife, I think. Um, and um, uh, fortunately for him, of course, Cindy was uh, uh, an heiress to a multi-million uh, member of a multi-million dollar family, uh, which uh, distributed beer for a living. Uh, at any rate, he moved to Arizona to launch his career in politics. He was challenged, inevitably, as a carpetbagger and an interloper. And at a candidate's forum, when so challenged, he said, Listen, pal. It started, listen, pal. It's always a good way to start. <clears throat> um, I would love to have lived my life in a wonderful place like the 1st District of Arizona, but I've been serving this country. Military people have to move around. They have to move around the country and the world. So I have not been so fortunate. In fact, here it comes. Now that I think about it, the place I've lived longer in my life than any other is Hanoi. And so was born the legend. Now, it wasn't actually true. <laughs> He'd spent more time in Arlington, but it wouldn't quite have gotten the same point across. Um, <clears throat> I know that I'm reading about John McCain lately, and I might as well. May I shill for my upcoming piece in the New York Review of Books, which should be out in, um, in two or three weeks' time. Um, okay, now, I'm going to stick to... Maybe 10 minutes even, huh? Just okay. to allow ample time for questions because I can make my points, I think, pretty quickly. First, I want to talk very quickly about myself because you hear liberal guy coming to talk about foreign policy. You have certain ideas in your head, some of which are probably true, some of which are not. I just want to clear things up for a little bit. I would call myself a liberal internationalist. I am sort of an admirer, sort of, an admirer of Harry Truman and of Dean Acheson, and of that generation of American liberals. Uh, I think they did a lot of good. I think they did some bad and laid the seeds for some later uh, rather uh, distressing catastrophes. But I think that they did much good. So I would call myself a liberal internationalist in their tradition rather happily. I very much supported uh, our invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, and yeah, it would be nice, Bill, to live in a, a Pacific uh, state, uh, but uh, a, a state something other than that was forced on the United States. And even though I am second to none in my lack of fanship for George Bush and Dick Cheney, I think they made the right decision. I supported that decision. I very much opposed the decision to go into Iraq. Uh, <clears throat> and I did so uh, quite strongly and quite vocally. Uh, that too, comrade, got one s s driven out of the mainstream rivers of American discourse, or however you put it, and off into the little brooks. Um, but I survived. I'm here. Um, <clears throat> so that's just a little bit about me, so you know where, uh, where I am. Now, I liked a great deal about this book. I liked the writing. I liked the wit of it. I liked the history of it. Uh, I very much like the fact that uh, a point that Bill brought out just now in his talk, that uh, it was illuminating to see that it was possible in the past to have a debate about a war in the Congress of the United States in which genuine dissent and opposition were voiced and in which votes were very, very contended and contentious, and in some cases quite close. Was it the War of 1812 yeah. that, that was narrowly approved? Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> these kinds of things were quite, quite interesting to learn, um, and I think the emphasis on the people who lost and trying to revive a tradition that is very much lost uh, on the conservative Republican side is very much a noble thing to do. Um, where... Bill lost me, as you'll probably surmise already from my brief introductory remarks, 
uh, is that you know we are not we don't really have the choice in my opinion to be contentedly local and to withdraw we didn't have that choice I don't believe in 1949 some would say we you know might have exercised that choice in 1941 excuse me we some say we might have exercised that choice in 1939 or 40 but obviously I think we had to exercise it in 1941 now indeed my biggest critique of the book and I reviewed it and the stacks of, did you see these out there there are stacks of this little piece of paper that are sitting out there this is my review uh, of Bill's book, which is why I'm here, from the journal Democracy, colon, a journal of ideas, which is edited by two friends of mine, Kenneth Baer and Andre Cherney. And uh, it's a very good uh, liberal quarterly journal that is trying to do for our side what Irving Kristol once did for your side. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> this is why I turn to you, David. Um, <clears throat> Now, the implication, he doesn't quite come out and say it, but the implication of Bill's argument is that, you know, America maybe could have stayed, it's just Nicholson Baker makes the argument that America maybe could have stayed out of World War II. Uh, I don't, I don't think that we would, uh, that most of us would think that that would have been a really good idea. And, uh, and I'll, I'll read, if I may, if you'll let, indulge me to read one uh, uh, short passage from my review, because I say it better there than I'll, than I'll be able to say it here. And I have a joke that we can put up against your Juice Newton joke in here and see if it does any better. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Kaufman is entitled to his views, but a conscientious author who wants to argue that America would have done just fine to stay out of World War II cannot ignore the question of likely consequences. Uh, Kaufman basically ignores it. His speculation about what might have happened amounts to two sentences. It might have been an epic disaster. On the other hand, Hitler and Stalin might have bled each other dry. And that's about all he has to say about the matter. And he says it with scarcely more gravity than if he were speculating on what might have happened if Lindsay Lohan had gotten someone else to take the wheel that fateful night of her most recent DUI. I thought it was funny. She <laughs> um, So uh, this is an issue. Now, you know, I'm no warmonger. I'm no hawk. I'm no neoliberal. I'm, I'm not with Christopher Hitchens. I'm not with Paul Berman. I'm not, uh, I'm not a signer of the Houston Manifesto, for those of you who know what that is, and I would never put my name to such an abominable thing in my life. So I'm not any of those things. But I think there are times when the United States, let's face it, we are a world power. We have this power. We can't pretend that we don't. <clears throat> I think there are times and occasions when the United States can use that power in limited circumstances uh, <clears throat> for briefly attainable ends. And I think that we did it reasonably well in Kosovo, um, for example. There can always be criticisms made of that. And yes, I know what, what's going on over there today, and it's not the land of milk and honey. Uh, but I do think that there are circumstances where the United States uh, can and should use its power. Uh, it's it's a it's a legitimate undertaking for a nation to do. Um, this is a uh, I'll just I'll, I'll start wrapping up by saying that uh, this is if you don't know since it's not many of your uh, circles, but this is being very hotly debated on the left in this town and elsewhere and around the country and. Uh, some of the kinds of people I just mentioned, the, the people in the left center in the Democratic Leadership Council, Will Marshall, Paul Berman, Nick Cohen, Nexus, uh, think that if the left, if the move on left has its way, that America will be uh, as isolationist as, as, as Kaufman's America. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the move on left uh, says that if the DLC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, group has its way, uh, the world will be no different than a world run by neoconservatives. Um, I'm more sympathetic to the second view than to the first, uh, but I think there is a little something to the critique of, of the left by those in the center. 
Um, And this is something that if Barack Obama does indeed become the president, will be really interesting to see, thank you, to see how it's played out over the course of his administration and who he appoints and who he puts into positions of power to make these decisions and how he sees the world. I would suspect, uh, given his reliance on Samantha Power, although unofficially now, but I would suspect that given his reliance on Samantha Power, uh, that he is to some extent a believer in the use of what we might call soft power uh, for uh, humanitarian purposes in very limited scopes. I don't think that the experience in Iraq, immoral, horrifying, and hideous as it is, should lead us, should lead the country and the Democratic Party and the liberalism about which I care into a posture that is reflexively isolationist just because the Iraq adventure was such a failure on every conceivable level. So um, I uh, applaud Bill's effort to, to bring this strain of thinking back into conservative thought. Uh, and I wish you Godspeed, and I hope it picks up some steam uh, and, and that you uh, find uh, more support in the coming years uh, <laughs> in the halls of Congress. Uh, I don't think it's very likely to happen. It, it, it may be even worse than 27 to 1 in the ninth inning. Um, but, <clears throat> but I do feel that it needs to be said. What you're saying needs to be said. Uh, but I disagree with, uh, well, I disagree with the portions that you know I disagree with, and I think I've taken up my time, and we should leave time for questions. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let's open this discussion up to questions. We do, of course, afterward have uh, copies of the book outside, um, as well as uh, New York Wine and Cheese. We also do have copies of Michael Tomaski's review out there on the table by the door, so please pick up a copy of both of these things so that you can get more considered thoughts of both authors. Uh, Yes, in the back, wait for a microphone to come to you. Thank you for your talk. I'm uh, Marcus Epstein with American Cause. Um, I missed the first few minutes of your talk, so if you cover this, uh, I apologize. Um, but you seem to uh, focus your uh, the left-wing consequences, why conservatives should be against war, mainly on its effects on individual family and local government. I was wondering if you could talk possibly uh, some of the way the ideological uh, facets of war, um, for example, uh, during the Cold War, saying we need to you know, have civil rights, on unions approved to the war cause and third worlders of the war that was just as the Soviets or today that we need to have gay rights to prove that we're better than the Arabs and similar type of things. Thank you. Uh, this, uh, let me preface this by saying I'm always, I'm always disappointed with the question and answer session because, uh, and the fault lies not with the questioner, but, uh, but the answers, uh, it's very difficult. I've, I find it very difficult, maybe because I didn't go to an English boarding school, but to frame a, a sort of coherent 60-second extemporaneous answer to questions. I used to do a lot of uh, interviewing of politicians, and I just – when I, ha- I had contempt for them because I'd ask something, and it's like there's a cassette deck in their head, and they press play, and out comes uh, a rehearsed 90-second uh, response. And then when I started occasionally being an interviewee, I thought, geez, I've got to get one of those cassette decks. <laughs> so uh, the question on the, uh, the, the ideological impact of, uh, of intervention, I, I would take it – let me take it in a slightly uh, different direction. Uh, in the, uh, the Cold War and the general sort of interventionist consensus of the 50s, the effect that had on the American right, uh, I think it destroyed or at least perverted the right. Gone were the concerns with liberty and decentralized governance and uh, prudence and a sense of limits. Um, all had to be sacrificed to, uh, to slay the god, that, uh, the god that failed, the ex-communists who were a substantial part of uh, the 
50s, the National Review right, people like James Burnham and, and Frank Meyer. And so you go back, go back some time through like the National Review of the late 50s, early 60s. It's, uh, you'll find they're obsessed with like, you know, uh, requisitioning of pencils in the Warsaw Pact and things like, you know. I mean, just the, 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 the oddest little things about the communist world. But like Warsaw, New York and Warsaw, Illinois, and they could care less. These things no longer existed for them. And so they're blind to uh, things. Actually, Michael, and it, it was a really intelligently critical review. I, uh, I commend it to you. Uh, he chides me a little for uh, my, uh, my obsession with the interstate highway system. <laughs> but uh, you can go through, uh, which, which changed the country, which was a sort of a, you know, Eisenhowerian uh, national, or Eisenhowerian Republican socialist program. It changed the country in many profound ways. You'll never find a single word about uh, the national about the national system of interstate and defense highways in National Review in the late fifties, uh, it went through. There was no opposition from the right in the Senate or the House. Only a handful of dreamy poets saw what was coming. So I guess uh, in a very uh, sort of uh, <clears throat> and uh, and fractious way, that's uh, that's a response to uh, the. The question about the ideological effects of war, I mean, I think it, uh, uh, it destroyed the right. Mm. Uh, nothing there. <laughs> All right, right here. Mr. Kevin, I've not read your book, but to be candid, your presentation struck me as a kind of Whitman-esque rant rather than a, a rational argument. So are you saying that no war that the United States has ever fought has been justified and that no conceivable war that the United States might fight is, would, would be justified? Well, you're going to have to read the book. <laughs> uh, the revolution was say. Uh, a war of national liberation that was justified. And, uh, you know, my, let, me, let me kind of reframe that question. My, Michael raised the World War II question. Obviously, that's the one that's always brought forth as, uh, 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 in response to uh, uh, isolationist Whitman-esque rants. And I actually, made, I actually made some notes here to myself so I wouldn't uh, be incoherent. The, my, my primary interest in writing about the debate over the Second World War was to... Uh, defend the honor of the America First Committee, which was slandered in one of the great historical injustices of, uh, of the age. The, uh, the mendacious claims of the worst of the interventionists, uh, I'm thinking in particular of Harold Ickes, and boy, the poison apple didn't fall far from that tree, did it? Uh, curdled into popular myth, the committee was the largest anti-war organization in American history with 800,000 members. It had a Main Street Republican base, but had wings uh, with uh, prairie populist wing, patriotic socialists, libertarian intellectuals. You know, its genesis was Yale Law School, formed by a series of men who went on to really impressive careers in the American establishment, Sergeant Shriver, Potter Stewart, <clears throat> Robert D. Stewart, uh, Ellis Roosevelt Longworth was a member, Gore Vidal, young John Kennedy, uh, Sinclair Lewis, Edmund Wilson was a sympathizer. You know, it was... It was as American as Geronimo and the Rotary Club. Uh, and it's smearing in the, uh, in the 40s and later on really set, to, uh, set the stage for later libels against anti-war movements and personages. The, uh, the American Firsters opposed U.S. intervention in the Second European War because they thought it was going to be a disastrous replay of the First World War. You know, it's a fool's game, though it's an enticing fool's game to play what if. I won't do it, but I will say that if, uh, if Congress had had the fortitude and the true patriotism to resist Parson Wilson's call uh, to arms in 1917 and keep our boys on this side of the pond, Germany probably would not have suffered so thorough a defeat, probably would not have been subject to so punitive a treaty. So it becomes difficult to see how Hitler would have risen to power under those circumstances. So the first answer to the what about World War II question is that if we'd held fast to the Washington-Jefferson line against entangling alliances in 1917, there might not have been a World War II. 
refusing to acknowledge backstories like this is uh, what the historian Robert Higgs calls truncating the antecedents. You know, liberal internationalists or conservative interventionists get us into these fixes. We find ourselves pinned down and immobilized, and they say, well, how are you going to get us out? Um, we hear that today about Iraq. The American Firsters also were in no wise pro-Nazi. Their oft-expressed desire, as Mike said, uh, was that Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, the two greatest tyrannies of the 20th century, would bleed each other dry, and that absent U.S. intervention on the side of Joseph Stalin, uh, Stalin and Hitler would destroy each other, which obviously that would have been a blessing to the world. Uh, the book is not a work of social science fiction. I do not know what would have happened if the U.S. had set out the war. Possibly catastrophe, uh, possibly the uh, mutually and devoutly to be wished destruction of the Hitler and Stalin governments, possibly something else. But I don't understand why what actually did happen, the deaths of six million Jews, tens of millions of Russians and Poles and Germans and Japanese and others, half a million American deaths and an unprecedented uprooting of our population, the hypertrophying of the American state, the delivery of half of Europe to Stalin and Soviet tyranny, the good war, as we call it, why is this thought to be the best possible outcome of that bloody lustrum? And why are we essentially forbidden to ask if there might have been other paths that might have produced better outcomes? Finally, you must remember that the America First Committee asked the question, uh, no one ever asked when we go marching off to war. That is, what are the domestic consequences of this crusade? You know, World War II bulked up the, the central state to a previously unimaginable thickness. It deracinated the population, not only soldiers, but also the civilian population. It led to the great diaspora of southern whites and blacks to northern cities. It centralized cultures, and in many cases, from Iowa to the Hudson Valley, gave the quietest to very vigorous regional literatures. It gave us income tax withholding and daylight saving time and government-run daycare. It changed the country in many ways for the worse. And so I think it's an open question. Mike, you wrote in your review you'd like to see a substantial number of Republicans hold views like this, but you wouldn't want them to actually prevail very often. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that second part? I think so. Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, think, uh, I think I made reasonably clear why I would hold that position in, in my remarks, which is that, you know, I think that there are – I think that there are times when when the United States does need to act, uh, you know, in the world and globally. And I think that, um, you know, that was a pretty good answer, I have to say, what you just said. You know, why, why, was, why was what actually happened to the best outcome? Who can say that that's the best outcome? But it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not too difficult for me and I would think for a lot of people in this room to envision a far worse outcome. Uh, if indeed uh, the United States hadn't stepped in when when the map of you know virtually all of continental Europe had a swastika on it, um, so uh, but yes, I mean I would like I'd like to see this this view more. For one thing, I'd like to see a more robust debate within the within the Republican Party uh, uh, about these questions. And uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, the Democrats are divided by it. So why shouldn't the Republicans be divided by these things? It just doesn't seem right. Yes, that would be good. Back there. And then we'll take one down here in front. You can go ahead and bring the mic down here. Thank you. Uh, my name is John LeBohm. I've been uh, blogging this primary season at electiondissection.com. So I ask you, I understand why uh, Barack Obama's constituency has been voting for him enthusiastically. But why has your America, uh, most recently evidenced in Gene Shepard's Hammond, Indiana, voting so enthusiastically for Hillary Rodham Clinton and in similar places for uh, Mike Megachurch Huckabee? I think it's because ballot access laws kept Mike Gravel off the ballot. <laughs> no, I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think there's a uh, – geez, Gene Shepard's hometown, huh? Hammond, Indiana. He's a great writer. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's such an odd choice, you know, Hillary and Obama. I mean, and yet uh, – to me, the ideal Democratic candidate for president would probably be, oh, a Southern Protestant who's against the war but is culturally conservative. I mean, Webb, uh, who 
I assume might be the vice presidential nominee, and yet these guys can never get the, they can never get the nomination. And I, I guess I, you know, why do people, why do my neighbors, the people who make up things like volunteer fire departments and historical societies, why do they go to the polls and vote for John McCain or Hillary Clinton? I think part of it is just that politics is a very small part of their lives. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much quasi-anarchistic. I mean, I think that ideally the choice of whom one votes for should be like choosing Coke or Pepsi, you know. Who cares? I mean, it should occupy such a small part of our lives. But uh, as my wife often reminds me, what I think ought to be and what are are two different things. Uh, so I, 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 don't, I, I don't know, and I don't know why Hillary uh, does so well with uh, uh, the white working class. It's... Uh, I don't think it can all be explained by racism. I mean, uh, you know, Obama is uh, hes sort of this placeless yuppie, you know? I mean, gosh, Hawaii. It shouldn't even be a state, you know? <laughs> you know, let's return to the contiguous 48. <laughs> I think Mike may have more insights. <laughs> I don't know if we'd stuck with Grover Cleveland's plan. You're right. But... <laughs> The queen would still be in the palace. All right, right here. Hi, my name is George Krasnova, and I'm president of uh, Russia-America Goodwill Association. It's an association of uh, Americans, Americans rather patriotic and conservative, for friendship with Russia. And uh, to our consternation, I don't see any good things happening since 1991, when the Soviet Union ended. I think it's like we, the United States, seems like we've done all in our power to antagonize Russia so that currently relations are not good. I would like to see some kind of shift of focus of U.S. foreign policy more toward Russia. And uh, I might say it also, well, I enjoyed the presentation of you, Bill, uh, you. Uh, in your book. Apparently, I have not read it yet, and uh, thank you for uh, Martin, yeah, uh, Mike. But, yeah, and of course, I'm happy that you sponsor such discussion of uh, U.S. foreign policy. But I don't see it among our presidential candidates, not even Obama. I think their policy, especially toward uh, Russia, is not realistic. It's not good, good for U.S. national security interests. And so I would like to see, well, yesterday I went to a presentation by Ron Paul. I think the only one who has realistic policy is Ron Paul, who is not any longer running. Yeah. So I would like you to respond to the, this uh, uh, abhorrent situation. And, uh, well, perhaps you can elaborate how it happened. I also would like you to have your uh, response to the, well, the conclu your conclusion sounded uh, like it reminded me of someone that, that uh, uh, to hell with the empire and, uh, and hail the Republic. That reminds me of uh, Pat Buchanan. Do you, is there any connection there? So, what's your <laughs> book about that? <laughs> so, what uh, I would like to hear responses from all of you uh, to that. Uh, mm. uh, for Thanks. me, for our organization, very important issue. I think the focus Thank you. from Middle nope. East should be go first? elsewhere. Uh, I don't, you know, well, I, I'll, I'll be quick, but uh, John McCain has a Russia policy. Doesn't he want to throw you out of the G8? <laughs> I mean, it's... Yes, exactly, exactly. Right. No, it's it's you can't not call it a policy, though. I'm sorry to say, it's uh, you know, I, no, he's uh, he's very wrong. I I think that Russia should be in NATO. I don't really understand why it's not. Now, it's a very, it's an admittedly eccentric minority view, uh, but uh, but hey, it's my view. But I'm not running for president. I don't really know what Obama's Russia position is. To be perfectly honest with you. Well, we're mirrors, because I think the U.S. should be out of NATO. <laughs> we can let Russia get in. <clears throat> uh, I think you're right. that saber-rattling against Russia is uh, irresponsible and uh, in favor of peace, commerce, and friendship with all nations, uh, including Russia. Uh, and I agree that uh, of the candidates this year, Ron Paul had by far the best foreign policy. <laughs> In the back there. I had thought our Russian friend would uh, scold Mr. Tomaski for endorsing the Kosovo war. 
The um, Robert Stacy McCain, uh, also known as the other McCain. Uh, <laughs> my question is, why do we have this Manichaean worldview about foreign policy? Why? Why is it to, you know that it's it's either Republican or Democrat, hawk or dove? Why can't you know? Why why does it tend to fall into this thing of, oh, uh, you're a hawk and oh, you're a traitor, and uh, and I think both of you uh, might have some input on that because you, as Mr. Kaufman just said, you're mirrors. Although actually, I think there's a fair amount of overlap. But, yeah. Uh, I guess I don't I don't really see uh, American foreign policy debate as today's being Manichaean. I mean, there's there's one side, you know. <laughs> it, uh, you know, when, when, when Ron Paul at these Republican debates would suggest, uh, would say, you know, why do we have soldiers and uh, troops in 130 countries? You know, these guys looked at him like he announced that he uh, was from Neptune. Uh, you know, they'd, they'd snicker and they'd snort. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I wish, uh, I wish there were a more robust debate. And uh, uh, even the calling of names would be preferable to the... Uh, to the deafening silence we have today. I think your complaint is the sort of a media complaint, isn't it? I mean, you know, by the time ideas uh, get from, you know, something like, uh, you know, Cato's Quarterly Journal or Democracy, a Journal of Ideas, to the Fox News Channel and MSNBC, they kind of get reduced, right? And you are either, particularly on Fox, you're either a, you're either a, a, a hawk or a patriot or, or a traitor. Uh, so, you know, I think that's basically what happens to the discourse. Re Kosovo, may I say, uh, in this age of identity politics, I'm, I'm a Serb in, uh, on my father's side, so I'm allowed to take that position. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, I think we're going to cut it off here. I encourage you all to get a copy of Ain't My America and of the uh, review that's outside and join us upstairs for a drink and further discussion. Thank you. And I do appreciate you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you.